Hey everybody, it's Britt, lead pastor at Sunridge. Welcome or welcome back to our teaching podcast. You know, we are on a mission here at Sunridge to help people find and follow Jesus. We believe in the good news that Jesus welcomes all regardless of how far you feel from God. That means we're a great starting point to explore Christianity or to sink your spiritual roots deep as a devoted Jesus follower. If you'd like to know more about us, just check out our website at sunridgechurch.org. And of course, we'd love to have you drop in anytime for a visit to learn and worship along with us. And now, here's our teaching for this week. Good morning, Sunridge. If you don't know me, my name's Britt. I serve Sunridge as the lead pastor here, and I'm just thrilled to see all the people showing up in our campus right here, and then those of you that are joining us online. So great, and we're thrilled uh, to be a part of your spiritual life here in the valley. You know, um, there is something that every one of us here needs. The person sitting next to you needs it. When you leave here, the people that you meet in the restaurant, they'll need it. When you go home, the people that are in your household, they're going to need it. Every person, every human being needs this. And you know what it is, right? It's $1 million in your 401k, right? (laughs) Actually, that's not it. But you might need that. It'd be nice, certainly, right? Amen? But uh, the thing about this thing that every human being needs, here's what's interesting. All of us have the capability to also give that to someone else. You don't need an advanced degree to do this. You don't even need a high school diploma. You don't need a large organization backing you financially. You don't even have to be smart to do this. And it doesn't matter what age you are. If you're an elementary school child, you can give this to someone who's like really old, like 50 or something like that. It's something that we can all do for one another. So what is it? It's encouragement. And so our main thought today for, uh, for this message is this, that encouragement is something that we all need and something that we can all give. Now, if you're just joining us, we're going through this book. In the New Testament, it's the fourth one, that it's the fifth book in your New Testament. It follows the four Gospels. It's called Acts. And if all the Gospels are about the story of Jesus and his ministry here on earth, Acts is about the first, about 30 years or so, of the, of the church. And so we've just been going from the beginning and we're going to follow through to the end. And if you remember, um, way back when we were in Acts 4, a name came up. It was Barnabas. And Barnabas first appeared in Acts 4. His real name actually was Joseph of Cyprus. And Luke tells us that Barnabas is actually a nickname that, his, that the apostles give him, which means son of encouragement. Which, by the way, is that a great nickname or what? Mine was Beast. No, I'm just kidding. And you, by the way, you know you can't make up your own nickname. Someone has to give it to you. No fair. Uh, I call myself on Instagram Big Wave, but that's only because one time I accidentally paddled into a big wave. And all my, my son-in-law and everyone I was surfing was like, go, Brit. But the, there was like fear in their voice. And after that, I'm like, I'm big wave. So that's, that's how I nicknamed myself. But now, in the middle of what Brian just read, this, this man, Barnabas, who is called the son of encouragement, 
He's here living up to his name in verse 23. When he, Barnabas, arrived and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. Now, what we're going to do today is we're going to see the events and people and things that happen that surround this story, and then we're going to bring that all forward to kind of like tie it all together. Like, what, what do we learn from all this that, that we, in this Temecula Valley, can like put into our lives and implement by this, this story of these people who lived so long ago. And as we've said, this is our story too. This is the church. We're the church, and this is how we began. If you remember last week, Peter was in Caesarea, and something revolutionary has happened. We kind of closed out last week with a man named Cornelius, who was a Roman captain, and uh, he and his whole family, with like not a lot of religious training or anything, and his friends, they all become Christians. And that's just radical what, what, for that to happen. And the news, this news spreads in Acts 11.1, 1, the apostles and the believers throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles had also received the word of God. And so that's cause for celebration. But not everyone is thrilled uh, with what's happening. So when Peter, after being there in Caesarea and so, you know, like being a part of this gospel presentation and receiving of it with Cornelius, his family, and his friends, he goes back to Jerusalem, the main church. And in verse 2, when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcised believers criticized him and said, you went into the house of uncircumcised men and ate with them. Now, we all know what circumcision means, right? But if you don't know the context of what's happening here, this can all be confusing because what, what Luke is referring to, he's the author of Acts, is not just like a, a, like a, um, a procedure or a physical being. It's circumcision in the first century for a Jewish person is it's like a, it's a tradition. And these traditions are extremely important to them. I've referred to Fiddler on the Roof before. Who loves Fiddler on the Roof? And what does he sing? Tradition, tradition. He's all about tradition. And it's a humorous look at it, but this is really real to them. They are the conservative originalists. It was really important to them to stick with their own and they were very much concerned that um, interaction with other religions or unreligions would somehow contaminate their faith, which, which is a real concern. But that's the background here. And so remember what's happening at this point. You have the gospel crossing these boundaries where we've said the original Christians come from a Jewish background. And they kind of thought that's the way it's supposed to be. But now it's expanding beyond that border. And so this, this group that forms that Luke talks about is an informal group. They're not like some official group like the Sanhedrin Council. The circumcised believers, as Luke calls them, are the hardline believers that believe that Christianity, anyone that becomes a Christian, must also accept all the Jewish traditions from the Old Testament. So in other words, they said, yes, you could become a Christian as a Gentile, but you also must become Jewish. You must take on all these Jewish traditions, which included uh, circumcision. 
So just as like a little sidebar, isn't it interesting to note how our ideologies and our traditions and the things, the things that we've experienced can become part of our faith in a way and get in the way at times of us of being a witness in the world. And these circumcised believers, they're upset at Peter, not just because he, he shared the gospel with Cornelius and now this Roman captain could have been an oppressor of, of these Jews just months before. Um, not just that he shared the gospel with him, but he went into their house, into his house, which that was like, you know, not supposed to be done either. And in response, Peter doesn't chastise them or get mad or get defensive. Uh, instead, this is what he tells them in verse 17. So if God gave them the same gift, and he's referring to the Holy Spirit in tongues, he gave us who believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I to think that I could stand in God's way? You can't dispute that. And lo and behold, they accept what Peter says. And they are convinced, convinced at least for a while, but yet we see that Christian, uh, persecution is scattering Christians during this time. But as we've talked before, it's not having the intended effect. It's actually sending it viral. And it's creating what we would call the first missionary organizations. And as this happens, as the, as the gospel starts to, to be spread around the world, Luke notes two different approaches and who people go to. In verse 19, he says, those who had been scattered by the persecution that broke out when Stephen was killed traveled as far as Phoenicia, Cyprus, and Antioch, spreading the word only among Jews. And, now you, and then you're going to see this bifurcation. The difference in verse 20, some of them, however, men from Cyprus and Cyrene went to Antioch and began to speak to Greeks also, telling them the good news about the Lord Jesus. Now, Antioch here is in Syria. There's, you're going to see another Antioch as we get into Paul's first missionary trip, which is next week. But this is like up the coast, a long way from Jerusalem, west and, and, and way up the coast. And at the time, this is the third largest city in, in this region of the world. Uh, it's, it's third only to Rome and Alexandria. And it's almost exclusively Gentile. So you have this thriving cosmopolitan city that is really diverse. And you, uh, scholars estimate the city at this time, Antioch, to be, their, their population to be as high as 300,000. That's a huge city, bigger than our valley in the first century. And it, it's famous for a lot of things, but one of the things it's famous for is the incredible immorality in the city. There was a temple of Daphne, and uh, the priestesses there were actually prostitutes. So you have like a very different culture for these traditional Jewish Christians who have been scattered. And what's interesting to me, it's like, you know, it doesn't seem to be coordinated in any way, but they're actually moving to this city, not away from it, in spite of what the culture is like. And with that significant movement of Christianity into this region, uh, Luke tells us that people are becoming Christians. And so the main church in Jerusalem sends help, and that's where Barnabas 
comes in. He is the encourager. And what does an encourager do with this kind of opportunity to help people who are new in their faith? Well, he goes and helps them, obviously, to encourage them. But another thing he does is he finds another person to come and help him to be a part of this encouragement. And so he recruits the Apostle Paul. Do you remember him? Saul. Uh, Jed talked about how he was miraculously con converted. That's in Luke, or I'm sorry, in Acts chapter 9. And in verse 25 of chapter 11, Barnabas went to Tarsus to look for Saul. And when he found him, he brings him to Antioch. And so Barnabas and Paul are a team for about a year, and they spend their time grounding these new Christians, who in many cases have like a pagan background or no background, and they're just like teaching them what they need to know as brand new Christians. So can you imagine, like if you were one of those Christians in that first century, and your two main teachers were Barnabas and Paul? It's like having Jed and Brit, really, when you think about it. But, <laughs> but actually, it explains why the Antioch church becomes so influential in the first century. It immediately has an outward focus. And right away, they're a generous church by collecting money and sending it uh, uh, during a famine to Judea. And it's in Antioch, uh, in, in Acts 11, that Luke tells us that these believers are the first time they're called Christians. And it's not like, like we use it today. It's kind of a derogatory term, but they didn't know what to call them, these little Christ people, these little Christ followers. What do we call them? There's no name for them. And so that's how, that's where Christian came from. So a lot of great things is happening, but as you know, life is real. And it's not, it's not all butterflies and roses that this expansion of the church starts to threaten the status quo. And so back in Jerusalem, while this is going on in Antioch with Paul and Barnabas, Peter has gone back uh, to Jerusalem. Uh, chapter 12, verse 1, it was about this time that King Herod arrested some who belonged to the church, intending to persecute them. So my, my opinion is Herod's in the New Testament, is our, they are as prolific as the Mary's. Right? It's hard to keep them all separated and like, which Herod is this? If that matters to you, in your note sheet, on the back of your note sheet, if you had, like, I've listed the Herods of that, that period. So now don't be like middle schoolers and get all distracted and start looking at it now. I want your full attention. This is for the future. But let me tell you about the Herods, okay? They're a dynasty. It's all in the family. It keeps getting handed down, as you'll see in my notes when you look at them eventually in the back. They're all connected. They're well connected politically, they're, and, and they're connected in their family. And even though they have this Jewish background, um, they just kind of like they're token Jews, because their, their Jewishness is highly politicized, and it's nationalistic, so that they leverage it in a way that they're trying to like gain advantage in the culture and so they become puppets, basically, for the Roman government to, like, keep the locals under control. They're Jewish people. They can keep their group all under control because they have familiarity with them and they're, and they're, they're somewhat related to them, even though the most devout Jews at that time, they kind of despise them. 
So this particular Herod that we're learning about is, is Herod Agrippa I. And he is the grandson of Herod the Great, which if you remember the Christmas story, uh, he, Herod the Great is the Herod that tried to trick the wise men and murdered all the babies in Bethlehem. And so Herod Agrippa I sees this Christian uprising as a threat, a political threat, and, and possibly you know, creating unrest in Rome and his authoritarian rule. So he has James, writer of your book in the New Testament, he has him murdered. And then he has Peter arrested and thrown in prison. But verse 5 of chapter 12 tells us this, but the church was earnestly praying to God for him. That is Peter while he's in prison. And then Luke tells us, verse 6, the night before Herod was to bring him to trial, probably to convict him and execute him, Peter sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains, and sentries stood guard at the entrance. And suddenly an angel of the Lord appeared, and a light shone in the cell, and he struck Peter on the side and woke him up. Get up, quick, get up, he said. And the chains fell off Peter's wrists. So it's like a miracle, right? And, and I love this part. Not just that it's a miracle and you see Peter being released from prison, but it's, I love the way Luke describes this. It's like the angel pokes him in the side. You catch that, right? He's like, hey, wake up. And Peter walks out a little confused by it all. But then my, my more favorite part, both are my favorite. I'm like the comedian Brian Regan. His favorite snow cone was grape and cherry. Both are his favorite. Um, is uh, when Peter shows up at the prayer meeting that has been held on his behalf while he's in prison. And in verse 13, he knocked at the outer entrance, and a servant named Rhoda came to answer the door. And when she answered Peter's voice, she was so overjoyed, she ran back without opening it and exclaimed, Peter is at the door. So Rhoda's is so excited, like the... I don't think she even opens the door. She just hears his voice. And she runs back in and tells everyone. And when she tells them, they say in verse 15, you're out of your mind. When she kept insisting it was so, they said, well, it must have been an angel. See, they're, they're convinced that Peter has already been martyred and he's put to death. But meanwhile, Peter keeps on knocking, verse 16. And when they opened the door and saw him, they were astonished, which is understandable, right? Now, I don't know if Luke's trying to be funny here, but this is funny to me. And it's interesting to me, I'm, you know, like, as a preacher, I nerd out on certain things, but, like, this is super interesting to me, like, this kind of detail that Luke puts in. I just, you know, it wasn't just a miracle happened, Peter came, and everyone was thrilled. It's like, he gives us these little details. And as you can imagine, uh, in verse 18, in the morning, there was no small commotion among the soldiers as what had become of Peter. And uh, it was a bummer to be on shift as a guard that day because Herod is furious that Peter's escaped and he has all the guards on duty that night executed. And then, oh, while, while he heads off um, to Tyronside, and he's, he's trying to tamp down another insurrection and Herod drops dead. Now, if you're a Christian in the first century, this is craziness. And the odds against you, you've been scattered. 
You're like you're fleeing persecution. You end up in this other place, and you know you're you're trying to share the gospel as you go, and in probably an uncoordinated way. They don't have a plan yet. They don't have a strategy. They're just saying what Jesus did in their life as they go. And you'd think you'd kind of like you know we need to like we need to focus on some other things right now. We're trying to stay alive. You'd think like when they see the pressure on them, they would like kind of like start to kind of like back off a little bit with, with so much stacked against them. But um, that's not what happens. And Luke wraps up chapter 12 of Acts with this, verse 24. But the word of God continued to spread and flourish. That is in spite of everything that was happening. In verse 25, when Barnabas and Saul had finished their mission, they returned from Jerusalem, taking with them John, also called Mark. We're going we're gonna to hear more about that in the future. So, we've gone through the passage, and we've covered a lot, right? If I've lost you, just raise your hand, and I'll repeat everything I said. <laughs> so, so much ground. So, how do we bridge what we just heard, what we just viewed over two chapters, and bring it to us? How do we bridge a context to us? Because you got... You have Peter facing uh, incredible opposition and being so brave and sharing the gospel. Um, you have him getting opposition from insiders because he was creative in the way he reached out to people that they didn't think should be reached out to. You have the church responding to trauma with prayer. And you have ordinary people who aren't even named, who are just scattered, and they're the ones actually spreading the gospel. We have our, we have our big names, but like... It's constantly saying that these people were scattered. And then you have God's intervention in, 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 in some miraculous ways to what was happening. But for me, what stands out most, and I think what can apply to us today, um, is Barnabas. And so the next few minutes, it'll be a little more than a few, um, I want to talk about the kind of person he was and what I think he did that could help us out today. But before I do that, I want to share another scripture with you. I'm going to put it up on the screen. It's in Hebrews chapter 10, verses 24 through 25. It says, And let us consider how we may spur one another on toward love and good needs, and not giving up meeting together, as some are in the habit of doing, but encouraging one another all the more as you see the day approaching. Now, we don't know who wrote Hebrews. Scholars speculate on it. But they're actually, um, it's being written um, at, a, at a time when all of this is going on, when it's really hard to be a Christian. And so often we read this passage and we, we think about like, well, yeah, you know, uh, don't give up meeting together. The church needs to be together, which is all true. Um, but I want to pull out of that the reason that they were getting together. Did you see it? Meeting together was half the story. They were meeting together to encourage one another. And so if that's something that God wants us to do, who better to learn from than the person who got nicknamed the son of encouragement? So what made him 
such a great encourager. And this is in your notes, four things that we're going to talk about that are profile that we learned from Barnabas about what an encourager looks like. Number one, encouragers see the potential instead of problems. They see the potential instead of problems. Verse 28, when Barnabas came to Antioch and saw everything that was happening, when he arrived, he saw what the grace of God had done, and he was glad. What did Barnabas see? He saw Gentiles becoming believers. And we have constantly been confronted with, like, how unusual, how ridiculous that was to them. And we saw in the beginning of teaching today that not everyone is thrilled about this thing happening. You see, in the first century, at the best, for some people, this was impossible for them to wrap their heads around that someone who was not Jewish could become a believer in, in the true God. But at the worst of this, these people that were becoming Christians, the Gentiles, they were repulsive to the original Christians. The way they lived, the, the things that they worshipped, their lifestyle, they were immortal, not immoral, immortal, they were immoral, and they were brutish. And you know, I just want to note that oftentimes we, we see the problems before we see the potential. Oftentimes we want to fix people uh, before they understand the gospel. Uh, I think I've shared with you before that my wife and I, Cindy, we, we came to California from Michigan because I was hired as a high school pastor in Huntington Beach. This is like, you know, we had to come out in horse and buggy. It was a really long time ago. And um, as the high school pastor, God, God did some things. And it's like, so like we had, you know, and we had church on Wednesday night. Those are the good old days. So, but like the youth group, like we weren't going to go sit in big church because that guy up there, just like me, I'm boring. I'm boring to you, aren't I? <laughs> so um, we did our own thing. And we had this group, but it was just a thing that happened. They were super athletic. They wanted to play all the time. So we started playing volleyball on Wednesday night. And then I'd give a little 10-minute devotion at the end. And it kept growing and growing. Like we had, to, we had to paint more volleyball courts on our church parking lot so that we could accommodate all these kids that were showing up. And um, so every night that we did that, I, I do my thing, and then like whoever won, whatever team won, and we'd like randomly pick them, I, I would buy them ice cream. Um, and so it was just crazy how many kids that were coming that, that didn't go to church. So that created problems because they didn't dress like Christians all the time. And this was a time um, uh, when dolphin shorts were in, Remember the dolphin, the running shorts, and all the girls wore them, and they like, they changed, they, they showed where your legs change names often. That's <laughs> the way I would put it. So they're coming like that, and they're not, they're not all sanctified in their language, so you are playing a competitive game, and you do hear bad words, sometimes from the church counselors. Um, and there was a lot of pressure on me as a high school pastor. Like, I felt stuck in the middle because my, my lead pastor at that time was like, hey, you know, you got to make these kids got to dress right when they come. And then we also had a Christian school, and those kids were super uncomfortable around these kids that were coming. 
And then, then we would do these beach parties, too. Everyone, you know, you're in Huntington Beach. What's the best activity you could do? Load up church buses and drive to the beach, right? And that was when, like, bikinis were changing, too. Like, where they started scooping way up. It was nothing compared to, you know, what was happening then. But I remember my lead pastor, you know, like, seeing the kids show up to get on the bus to go to the beach. And he's like, these girls, I have seen more cotton in an aspirin bottle than what they're wearing right now. That was his thing, which I thought was good too. But um, the, the main thing I'm trying to tell you is there was, there was like this tension because people were like, they didn't know what they didn't know. And there was all this concern about um, the non-religious kids that were coming. And this was like one of the first times when I really, like it got into my head, into my heart that we change from the inside out. And we have an opportunity when we're around culture or things that make us uncomfortable to see the potential God is giving us more than the problems. Because when God's grace is at work, like it was in Antioch, it's going to be messy. And what I want you to see is that Barnabas was glad about what happened. He saw what the grace of God had done. He said, all right, let's see what God is going to do. Hey, Paul, come and help me with all these people. Because an encourager sees the potential over the problems. Second th uh, thing I want to point out about an encourager is that encourages, encouragers cultivate hope in God. They cultivate hope in God. This is a distinctly Christian perspective, but we often get the wrong idea about encouragement. We think it's all about telling someone how great they are and patting them on the back all the time and how they can do it. But sometimes that kind of encouragement, just praise, is not called for. But, but we can get the we, we create praise junkies by like constantly patting people on the back for everything that they do. What about when we need encouragement in something that isn't going to be approved by culture as a believer? What about when someone needs some encouragement in their role as a mom or as a dad or as a student or an employee? Because what we're, what we're experiencing today is self is telling us something different than what God wants us to hear. Um, one of the things I read in studying for this message is that encourage means to give courage to. To give courage to. But where does that courage come from? It, it, does it mean I'm supposed to be courageous in myself? Just believe in myself? But encouraging is not just rescuing or fixing or overprotecting. In verse 23, Luke says that when he arrived, that is Barnabas, and saw what the grace of God had done, he was glad and encouraged them what? Them all to remain true to the Lord with all their hearts. So we don't see Barnabas saying, you can do it. He says, remain true to the Lord with all of your heart. When Joshua was taking over for Moses, and they have... They've been wandering in the wilderness. They come to the edge of what is, they refer to as their promised land. And yet, there are still warring tribes uh, 
in that land. And so it's not going to come easy. They have enemies to defeat. How did God encourage Joshua as the leader of the military at that time? Did he say, you can do it. This will be easy for you. You're way smarter commander than any of them. You're a better warrior. They're lame, so you're just going to beat them. So go do it, Joshua. No, in Joshua 1.9, it says, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be afraid. Do not be discouraged, for the Lord your God will be with you wherever you go. So an encourager like Barnabas or Joshua doesn't always say you're the center of the universe, but says that God will strengthen you in this. Do you see the difference? And this is one of the things that where I think Christianity is clashing with secular thought today, because the secular mind says today that um, the self is the center. You're to be whatever you want to be. You can believe what you want to believe. You're the judge. You can be your own strength. What do you want to do? What do you think? And so self is elevated over God. And anything that interferes with my self-expression is bad, whether it's a tradition or a regulation, a law, a societal norm. If that interferes with me personally, then, then I'm just going to allow myself to rule myself. And it creates a moralism of self. And so that, I mean, there, there's like these contradictory things that are going on. You're going to totally relate to this. For instance, you can't tell me what to do with my body, but I can tell you it's immoral to go to SeaWorld. You can't tell me whether I can wear a gun down Main Street, but I can tell you it's wrong to sleep around. And so we're all kind of like, it's moralism based on self. What do I think today? It's based on me. It's, it's actually a religion of self. So it is any, any like surprise that people are so hot and inflamed about the things that we talk about. But here's the thing. Christian thought is God-centered. And God is the foundation of our encouragement to one another. And sometimes that encouragement will be to rely on the strength that God could give you, that God will give you to think differently or to live differently than your personal preference or your culture. And if you're a parent, can I just say to you, as, a, as, a, as an imperfect parent my whole life, and if you just talk to my children, they will, um, they will reinforce that. Don't make the mistake of telling your children everything that they get told is right. Because it's not. And don't tell them that they can have their, their own strength in themselves and you can just do it because they can't. And as, as Christian parents, what we should be encouraging our children toward is to remain true to the Lord in all your heart. That kind of encouragement comes from a, a, a point of humility that knows that all change is the result of God's grace. And we must place our trust and hope in God and in his word because encouragers cultivate hope in God. So if if encouragement isn't just to flatter, then how do we do it? That's point three. Encouragers tell the truth, but they package it with love. They tell the truth, but they package it with love. John said of Jesus that he was full of grace 
and truth, which is a very unique combination. And it is the key to being a God-centered or gospel-centered encourager. Because we as human beings, we tend to be one or the other, right? We tend to be either people of grace or people of truth. But an encourager is both. In Luke's description of Barnabas, verse 24, chapter 11, he says he was a good man, full of the Holy Spirit and faith. Good and full of the Holy Spirit. See, a person who emphasizes only being good can't see the potential in the kind of ragamuffin crew that starts becoming believers in the first century. And they will only see these new people as a threat. Or they will immediately go to work on correcting their lack of goodness. Or they will end up standing far apart from those that they deem not good. And uh, even though they're the ones that they should most be around to influence them. And then a person who emphasizes or overemphasizes the spirit can just be kind of laissez-faire about spiritual development. Well, just love them. Well, it's both. And that's what Barnabas did. He merged good and the spirit in his faith. And so that he and Paul together taught great numbers of people, Luke tells us. So they weren't weak on seeing that truth is like, you know, inserted into the hearts of these new believers, but they did it with love. And it seems like we have a tendency to be on either the good side or the spirit side, and that's causing silos to form in Christianity. And you can see this, like churches kind of take on a personality, a vibe. And the churches that emphasize good are constantly holding up the standard but often in a way, they, they lack the spirit. They hold it up in a way that like, it's just like the message is just be good, which we're defining good. So you be this. And it, and it ends up creating these categories of good people and bad people. And so the way they talk about people, it's like, well, we're the good people and they're the bad people. And that's, that's just creating moralism. That's just creating a moral standard. And, and demanding that people live up to it, whether their heart is there or not. And it's just, it's about changing people's behavior without changing the underlying heart that actually is the thing that changes us, right? The grace of God did these things in Antioch. And then you have churches that are so spirit-tilted that, you know, it's just love, 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 but never actually saying the truth to somebody. An encourager speaks truth and love and harmony. Before I do the last uh, point, I'd like the band to come up, but here it is as they're making their way up. Encouragers encourage with more than words. I mean, the way I've been talking about this so far, you could get the idea that, like, this is all about just the words that we say to one another, good and encouraging and you know, spirit-filled, blended with love. But, you know, it was much bigger than that. Barnabas just didn't just... He, 
loved these Christians in Antioch with uh, words. He, he, he didn't just talk the talk. He walked the walk. So when he goes to get Paul, you know, that trip to Tarsus was 100 miles. That's how far he goes to get this guy that he thinks is going to be really helpful as a, as a scholar of his day and a great communicator. Uh, he brings him along. And it's like he's encouraging to Paul because Paul is like, everyone's skeptical of him. Remember earlier in Acts, he's murdering Christians. He's standing there right with them. And so he's actually not just talking to Paul, but he's, he's, he's connecting with him, and he's bringing him along. And I think that encouragement looks like that so often. We think, well, I don't have the right words to say. Sometimes encouraging is just like driving someone's kids to Little League for them, giving them a break, giving them dinner, having them over your house, you know, serving them in some way. You're an encourager if you work in children's ministry. You're a big encourager if you work in children's ministry. You know, or our folks in the tech booth or our band up here. There's like so many ways that without words, we can encourage one another. And I think the church is designed to function kind of like a garden in this way, just to bring all these thoughts together. It's like, you know, as we come together as believers and as we are, in, you know, kind of like entwined in each other's lives, we're cultivating things in one another, right, by encouraging. We're like tilling the soil. We're watering one another. We're providing nutrients for them. But at the same time, we're pulling weeds. We're picking those tomato bugs off the vine. Those guys are so gross. You ever notice when you smash them, they smell just like tomatoes? You are what you eat. That's what I would say. Diseases in the plant are treated and pests are eliminated. When the, when the church is encouraging to each other, when we, when we see the potential, not just the problems, and we, we elevate people's hope beyond like, you're great, you're super duper good. When we point them toward their hope in God, that God can make a difference in their life. When we tell each other the truth in a loving way, and when we, talk the, when we don't just talk the talk, but we walk the walk, we are encouragers. It's something that we can all do and something that we all need, and the end result is right here in verse 24 of Acts 11. A great number of people brought to the Lord. Who wants that? I want that. Do you guys want that? Yeah. Let's, thank you, one of us. Yeah. You didn't have to applaud. You just, you should have got up and like started fist pumping. I think a great way to respond to this is I'm just going to say a simple prayer and then Jed and the band have some songs that tie in these thoughts. Think about the words as we sing them. Hey everybody, it's Britt again. Thanks for listening. If you need something, if you have a question, or you'd just like us to pray for you, you can reach us through email, info at sunridgechurch.org. We hope you'll listen in again next week, but in the meantime, keep helping people find and follow Jesus.